Hello and welcome to C3 Newcastle City Podcast. It is our honour to host you and trust you will enjoy this message as much as we did. For more information about C3 Newcastle City or to connect with us, visit our website, www.c3nc.com. Hey, um, that's pretty big to live up to, Ryan. How am I going to do that? I think we should all just have coffee. I I don't have coffee in there, don't worry, I'm not cheating on you. I'm kind of off the coffee stuff since about 19... Oh, was it? 2008. We did a fast on... We did a fast. Called the church to a fast. And I used to drink about 8 or 12 cups of coffee a day. Had a coffee maker in the corner in my office. This is before it was popular. And uh, all day long drinking that stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm going on, a, going on a fast. I stopped at cold turkey. I'm telling you, I ached in my bones. It just... I, and I thought, this is not good, so I didn't go back on the stuff. So, honestly, this is green tea. I know, I know. My younger guys over at Victory tell me I'm sick for drinking that stuff and that it's not real stuff. But anyway, how are we this morning, C3 people? On this resurrection morning, you loving it? How good is it? Springs in the air, right? Hey, your, your name is creative. I can't get over this. C3 people. So, we kind of thought at Victory, uh, we would be creative and call ourselves C3 people too. Or also... Is that okay? Because if you're people, what are we? Aliens? No, that's all right. Yeah, we are, actually. Peter said we're aliens, didn't he? So anyway, no, that's good. I I get it. It's people to people, people to God, people to purpose. I got it. So why didn't you say all of that? C3, people to purpose, people to people, people to God. Just a mouthful. Nah, but it's so good to be here with you again. You know, Janet and I... Uh, love you guys. We our, our history goes all the way back with you to 2002. Can you imagine that? What is that? 17, almost 18 years ago, uh, we launched out that little church in the Bymet Lodge. Ryan and Erica were 19, and on the core team and making it happen. And here you are today. Just man, gangbusters, going great. So proud of you. You're looking good. You're champions, and you're you're going from strength to strength. And uh, we just love what's going on. I better turn the timer on shouldn't I? Because they warned me this morning about preaching. You think I preach long? What about the Sermon on the Mount? For heaven's sakes, how'd you like to sit through all that in one go? I mean, that makes me look short. Jesus was preaching by a calendar, not by a minute, you know. Um, It was his first one, so he thought, yeah, I'm going to get it in here and now. We're going to let him have it. And so he did, you know. So we we just want to give you greetings from C3 Victory, both of our campuses. Uh, What time is it? 1045. So they're about to round up, go into the altar call at Central Campus, praying for people to be saved. Pastor Mel is preaching. It's our Freedom Month. And uh, and Northwest has started 15 minutes ago with uh, Pastor Darren preaching. He's headed off to Thailand on Wednesday. He and Pastor Simeon are ministering at C3 Bangkok with a young team that's over there, which is awesome. But I, I think you probably heard the news. We, uh, we kind of did a weird thing. It, it, I know it's strange and it's out there, but after years of looking for a building and being homeless, we decided it's not our calling to buy a barn, convert it, and just have a once or twice meeting a week building that's sitting empty. So we bought the building that we're in, paid cash for it, totally debt-free, um, and if you've been around Newcastle for quite a while, you'll know it as the old Westpac Bank. Anybody remember that? Gosh, only somebody, you had to be here about 20 years ago. Yeah, Charlestown. Yeah, right across from as you enter the, you know, the um, Myers car park there. We bought that thing, and the whole downstairs is set up 
and it is made to interact with the community to run uh, things against depression, against suicide, to help people with art therapy and counseling and cap. We have seen 147 families debt-free over the years we've been doing cap. So it's things like that. It's not a church setting. It's a community impact setting. And so we're just believing God's going to, because what's happened to the church in Australia over the last decade, I don't care what label you got on the door, Catholic, Baptist, or as they say in Alabama, Baptist, I'm a Baptist boy, what are you? I don't dance and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. But anyway, um, I don't care what label you got over the door, uh, we've lost credibility in the eyes of society because of all the abuse and the Royal Commission. And I believe it is now up to us to regain their trust and integrity. And you know how you're going to do that? You love them into the kingdom. They're not listening. They won't listen until they see, until they feel and experience. So we said, hey, we're, just, we're going to spend our money on a building that'll do that. So pray for us because we're right in the middle of it. We're believing by the end of next year, we will have 20 solid partnerships with people in the community that's making an impact into this city for the kingdom of God. So pray for us. And uh, as, as Pastor Ryan, I'm going to be formal at first and thank him, Pastor Ryan. But from here on out, he's my son-in-law. He's Ryan. All right? Is that all right? Can I do that? But I want to honor him, call him Pastor Ryan, because believe in him, proud of him. Um, as he said, we've kind of we've handed things over. We now have lead pastors over the, all, the whole thing of victory, which is Lockie's brother, Nate. Now, just to give you a piece of trivia, Nate came to Christ in this building. I don't know how many years ago it was, but quite a number of years ago. Was it 2002? You were, you were here, was, yeah, that's awesome. So Nate and Rachel are now the lead pastors over Victory, frees us up to kind of get out there and do more in what I call our fourth quarter of ministry. We're in our 40th year of ministry. Started when I was five. Preaching. I used to see Jensen marching around our lounge when he was five and he had papers with Pastor Phil on it. He couldn't read, but he just cut papers, papers, and he would preach like Pastor Phil. So, but I, I, I just want to thank Ryan for inviting me to preach this morning because uh, even though the other day he admitted he gave me the toughest parts of the Sermon on the Mount and then he laughed about it. What's that about? I mean, I thought you loved me. You know, you said you loved me and you give me that stuff. So I hope I don't disappoint you this morning, mate. No, come on. He loves me. He, 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 yeah, and he's the best. You know that. But I, I want to tell you, it's, it's a great series that you're in. You, you can't imagine how powerful this series is and how it changes lives. No, Siri, go away. I, I swear, Siri is demonized. She just starts talking to me at the worst times. You can imagine, I'll be right in the middle of something in my office. What did you say? You know, it's like, I said, shut up. Just leave me alone. Be quiet in Jesus' name. Anyway, um, it, it's a great series. And, and Ryan asked me to focus on the issue of discipleship in the Sermon on the Mount. When you first read it, you wouldn't think that. And yet he asked me to do this. And, and, and it's such a great series. I'm pretty passionate about this thing of discipleship making disciples. I'm more passionate about it than ever before in this fourth quarter of ministry. I want to focus my time and attention on the only commission that Jesus gave his followers. Go and make disciples of all nations, all people groups. And, and yet my concern is this, and, and hear me on this. I'm not being critical. I'm just observing. Okay. My concern is that we have been busier making disciples of the church rather than radical followers of Jesus. 
look back on it on years of doing it and going, oh, God, what did we do? We taught them how to do a lot of good things, but we didn't see them transformed as you want them to be and design them to be into the image of Christ. That's what a disciple is. And so it shouldn't be such a disparity between the two, but it's sad to say it happens in so many quarters of the church. We were watching a thing online or on Foxtel yesterday. The, the uh, actor that plays in the movie uh, behind the song, I Can Only Imagine, powerful, powerful movie. Don't know if you should see it. But the, the main actor, which was the dad, was Dennis Quaid. Remember Dennis Quaid? He's played a lot of roles. He literally said in the interview that, oh, yeah, it was like the day I walked down the aisle of a Baptist church and made the decision. And most of us would go, huh? No, we don't think of a follower of Jesus and think of Dennis Quaid. And that is so common. If I walk the aisle, tick the box, pray a prayer, I'm in. Nothing else happens. And that's sad. That's not what it's about because, you know, we want to get into the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, this is what true disciples are like, true followers. And before we get into that, why don't we pray first? That's a good thing to do, isn't it? I need, I need the practice and you need the prayer. So let's do it. Father, we want to thank you for your word. You said that your word is living, it's sharp, pierces even beyond flesh and bone and goes straight to the heart and soul. Your word reads us, speaks to us, defines and changes us. We want to thank you. It's a word of truth. It's a word of faith. It's a word of grace. We want to thank you, God, that just one word from you can set any captive free. And God, we believe as we hear this, even though it's a teaching sermon, that God, this faith begins to, this word begins to build our faith. Grace just flows through this word. It washes us. We want to thank you for this word. Heaven and earth will pass away, God, but your word will still be here forever. And we want to thank you for it. It transforms our lives. So, God, as we listen, give us ears to hear what the Spirit wants to say. The one who authored this word can change us in a moment's notice. We're believing for it in Jesus' name. Amen. If I was like uh, Pastor Nate, I'd be praying for the Jets right now. He always concludes his prayer, praying for the Jets. God knows they need it. Who's a Jets fan? I know all the Halleys are, aren't you? Yeah, Jets fan. They didn't do too bad. Okay, let's get into the Sermon on the Mount. Let's, let's get into the context because context is king. Listen, if you take a text out of context, it becomes a pretext. And people come up with all these weird, wild ideas about what God said, and he would say, I never said that. So I said, grab it out of context. And the Sermon on the Mount is right in the middle of a context as the longest sermon Jesus ever preached. And, and it's not just the longest, it's tough. It's a strong sermon. This is not one of your typical conference sugar stick sermons where you get motivational, feel-good stuff. It's laced with the tough sayings of Jesus like, hey, you're blessed if people insult you. What? I thought I'd be blessed if everybody loved me. Nope. And he said, even if you're angry with somebody, you're subject to judgment. What? No, no, you don't just kill them. Just be angry at them. And he's saying these tough sermons, but you need to understand that the sermon is aimed at a very religious Jewish culture. Keep that in mind. And that culture, they would always think, come on, we're religion, we're religious. Have we done enough to get God's attention and make him happy with us? Can we tick enough boxes to say, I think I'll make it because I've done enough religiously? Very religious culture. 
And Jesus is cutting right across that. They'd sit there and think, did I treat the Lord's Day with respect? Did I keep all the laws? Did I go to the temple enough this week? Did I do enough in church? And Jesus is going, that's not what it's about, guys. He said, this sermon is about the king and his kingdom. More than any other book in the Bible, Matthew directs this thing straight at you. think, why are there four Gospels? Because they're directed at four audiences with four different flavors. And this one is fair and square directed at the Jewish community. Matthew, more than anybody else, has the tone and the feel. Uh, any Jew reading it would go, yeah, I know what that means. I understand that. Whereas we would go, huh? I, I, I don't know. And yet, it's this thing that he presses across. This is about the king and his kingdom. And he's showing that, hey, the king has come. He has brought his kingdom. And this is what he's saying about the people who live in that kingdom. They are like this, the people in the kingdom. And the sermon shows us, hey, it's not what you think. It's got upside-down principles and practices that you wouldn't even think about that is so radical people go, what the? You know? And Jesus begins the sermon, as you probably heard a few weeks ago. Uh, the intro to the sermon is nine Beatitudes. You know that? That's how he begins his sermon. I can imagine, you know, it said a whole huge crowd followed him up on a mountain. He sat down, which is what a, law, a teacher of the law would do. They wouldn't stand like us. To show their authority, they would sit in front of the people. And that says, hey, listen, the teacher is here. And this big crowd, come on, give us your best shot. We know you're the man. You're on all conference speaking, uh, uh, you know, kind of agendas. Tell us what it's all about. And so he starts with this thing. Well, happy are the people that. Because some of the versions don't say blessed. They say happy, right? Come on, who knows a Pharrell Williams song? Keep clapping. Happy if you're clapping, you know, all that stuff. And the problem with that is this. We have a particular mindset about what it means to be happy. You and I'll sit back and look at it as Gentiles and go, well, you know what? I'm only happy if, right? Usually happy to us is a self-serving concept, and it's usually contractual. Don't miss this. We even treat God this way. God, I am happy with you if you do this for me. We even say to people, we say this to people, I will stay with you as long as you keep me happy. Right? That's a contract. That's not covenant, that's a contract. And people decide whether they're going to stay in a relationship based on, do you keep me happy or not? And this is the whole thing around this. Jesus is saying, this is not about your happiness, this is about your completeness. Oh, you missed that. This is about what God is wanting to transform you into, not what makes you happy in the moment. Because you're not going to find this kind of thinking and practice in the Sermon on the Mount about a true disciple. Jesus turns the culture on its head when he says in chapter 7, verse 12. I think this will be on the screen. Do to others whatever you'd like them to do to you. Isn't it amazing the world grabs that and calls it the golden, say it, rule? Yeah. And he says, this is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. In other words, the whole Bible is about this. How you treat others, not how they treat you. Oh, I don't like that. But here's a radical thought. Could it be that God is committed to our wholeness, not our happiness? I'm just not happy with things going on in my faith. Well, you don't listen to Pharaoh Williams to get happy. You go to this. And he'll tell you what it's all about. I like what Pastor Rick Warren said. He said, God is more interested in your character than your comfort. 
God is more interested in making your life holy than he is in making your life happy. So this large crowd is sitting there listening to this stuff, and they're going, oh, that's not what we came to hear. Some of you are probably sitting there going, oh, we didn't come to hear him say this this morning. Listen, there's as many tough sayings of Jesus as there are the nice sayings. You know, he spoke more about the tough stuff than he did about love. He actually spoke more about your possessions and money than he ever did about love. People go, oh, he's all about love. That's not true. He's also about you and everything about you. And, and, and this crowd is listening to this, and Matthew calls this whole crowd disciples. He uses a general sweep of the thing, and in a general sense of the word, the crowd is called disciples. But Jesus says, I'm going to break that down. I'm going to put a new definition on the thing of disciples, just like Paul put a new definition on the word church. You know, the word church existed before we got it. We just took it and Christianized it. It was called ecclesia, which meant the ones who were called out for an assembly. And Paul said, I'm going to take that and I'm going to turn it into the thing that, that defines the people of God. Well, Jesus does the same. I, I'm going to take this word that talks about a big crowd that's come for some kind of show, and I'm going to narrow it down to what true followers, radical followers of this kingdom are like. And he reveals to us the marks of these true followers beginning at chapter 5, verse 17. So if you've got your Bible, as uh, Pastor Simeon would say, if you've got your analog Bible, you can turn in it. Those of you that have your digital Bible, you can look at it. And those of you that don't care, you can sip a latte. No, no, kidding. You can look on the screen. I've got it on the screen. I'm going to read this in the NIV. I'll be jumping around to different versions. Verse 17 of chapter 5, Jesus begins to describe true disciples. Stay with me. It's not immediately evident. Verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Stop. That was a way of saying the whole Old Testament, not just those books and those books. He's saying from the beginning to the end, the whole Old Testament, I didn't come to break it or to do away with it. I came to fulfill it. And Jesus made it clear in John 5, 39. Listen, he said this. The Pharisees are kind of going, yeah, we know the Bible, and we've studied the Bible, and we've written commentaries on the Old Testament. And he goes, you know what? If you really knew the Bible, you know what you'd see? Everything talks about me. That's what he said. The whole scriptures testify that life can only be found in me. And I'm telling you, from Genesis all the way through to Malachi, everything, there's this scarlet thread, this, this red thread going all the way through, constantly telling us God is up to something. He is doing something. He is getting back what your ancestors lost. That word is called redemption. It means to buy something that's been sold into slavery. He's going to pay the price and get it free. And if you look at the scriptures, this is what Jesus is saying. It's about me. Verse 18. I tell you the truth. Pause. I know what you're thinking. You think, gosh, if he keeps doing this, we'll never get through. That's okay. I only got to go to the end of chapter 7. Now you panic. Okay. I tell you the truth. It's kind of like you'll hear me through. I don't even know I'm doing it, but I'll go, listen. Listen. You know what I'm doing? I'm trying to get your attention. Not because I didn't want you to hear what I, everything else I just said. It's because I am focusing on something that I want to make an impact on you. And Jesus says over and over, I tell you this. I tell you the truth. The old King James says, verily. Some versions, you know, it's the same word as amen. It's true. It's so. 
I'm trying to impact you with something right now. And you know, Matthew records Jesus doing this 31 times. And why is he doing this? This culture is blinded by their religion. They can't see. They're not impacted anymore. Sad to say that a lot of church people are like that. They get so immune to what's going on in church. They get so anesthetized by Christianity. They're not impacted anymore. Even the simple things. You know, Karl Barth, the great theologian, was asked once. I mean, he was brilliant. And he was asked once, what is the greatest, the deepest thing you could tell us that you have ever seen and learned about Jesus Christ? He stopped for only a second. And you know what he said? It was deep. It was so deep. You know what he said? Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. And that's all he said. And sometimes we go, come on, give me something new. Give me something deep. Give me something I haven't heard. Listen, I can't tell you anything new. I'm just going to say it different. But the deal is this. But is it still in a new way impacting your life? Have you lost the newness of this? So Jesus is going, I'm telling you something. I'm going to give you something that's going to impact your life. You've heard this for thousands of years from the prophets and from the historians, but I'm bringing it to you as life and breath. So listen. So here he goes. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter. This is equivalent in the Hebrew alphabet. It's equivalent to our little I in English. Not the smallest letter, not even the little I, uh, and not even the least stroke of a pen. This is like the little line on a P that distinguishes between a P and an R, right? Just a little bitty line. He said, none of that is going to pass away. Everything will happen and be fulfilled and accomplished. Period. Everything. Nothing will disappear from the law. We kind of think we're in the New Testament. The Old Testament is redundant. Not true. The Old Testament is fulfilled. We can look at it and go, done, 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 done. Everything. Everything. You know, Jesus didn't look through the Old Testament and go, you know what? I kind of don't like Isaiah 53. It says I'm going to get beaten. It says I'm going to suffer. It says they're going to pull my beard out. It says they're going to reject me. I'm going to be alone. I think I'll cut Isaiah 53 out of my Old Testament. People have got this thing where they just pick and choose in the Bible, you know, and they, they, they do this. It, it, they, they go, I don't understand it. I don't know its relevancy. I don't know what it means, so I'll just skim over it. It means nothing. I read through, I read through the book of Numbers. I got into two chapters and went, I think I'll go to something else. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. Everything in the Bible has this one message from beginning to end that the, the, the Messiah, the Christ, the King is coming, and this King will get back what you lost everything, and it will be accomplished. But I want you to notice something in verse 19. He's talking about himself. I'm not going to violate the Bible. I'm not going to violate the law. I'm going to fulfill the law, but what about you? What are you going to do? Because he says this, anyone. Everybody say anyone. You know that means you? Everybody say me. Okay, so he's basically talking about you and me. If I break one of the least of these commandments and teach others to do the same, I'm going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus isn't talking just about himself now. He's talking about his followers. And he says, but if you practice and teach these commands, you'll be great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, he, he just, man, I'm telling you, this is a wild verse. It's kind of like, what is that? Where did that come from when he says, for I tell you, boom, impact. 
that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Everybody then would have inhaled and gone, <gasps> we're doomed. I'll come back to that in a minute. So this is about discipleship, according to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And he, he does this. A true disciple is marked by how they respond to the Word. Period. Period. It's not a coincidence that John calls him the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was flesh, and we beheld him and his glory. Jesus is called the Word. Not that, not that the book and the man are the same, but the book is about the man. And they're both called the Word to reveal to us the heart of a father who, who aches over a broken world. And Jesus is, is shifting the goalposts on what it means to be a true disciple here. Listen, stay with me. It's not just about being part of a crowd at a conference. It's not just following the latest, greatest speaker around to see what trick they can pull off at that moment. And nor is it even just about believing in Him. It's more than that. It's not just about being religious. Did you know surveys show that close to 75% of Australians say they believe in God? You, you know when they interview the cricketers and everybody on TV, oh yeah, he's looking down. They have this thing within them that hopes they're going to make it into the hereafter and it's going to be good. They believe in a God somewhere, but that's not going to get you there. It's more than that. Because we know this, that a disciple is one who follows in the footsteps of their teacher, their leader. It's more than just a learner, it's an imitator. They don't just listen to the teachings, they don't just believe in their teacher, they trust their life to their teacher. And that's what Jesus is showing them. And Jesus is someone whose life totally fulfills the Word of God. Totally. And when it came to the Word of God, here's what the Pharisees would do. They would take the commandments and the laws and they would bend them so that they could kind of bend the rules for themselves but nobody else, and it made them look way up here. Golly, how do they do all that stuff? I'll tell you how they do all that stuff, because in the background, they're not keeping it, they're bending it. And Jesus begins to teach, and that was a threat to their teaching. And they didn't like it, so they went after him. They're going to accuse him. Well, listen, you might think we bend the law, but this man breaks the law. So they go after him, and they try to condemn him. You know, and Jesus said, hey, I didn't come to break or abolish the law. That word abolish literally means to completely invalidate something that was in force. So I didn't take the law and make it invalid. I didn't say you didn't have to rest on the Sabbath. Yes, you did. You and your disciples worked on the Sabbath. Tell us how we work. Now, this is how they bend the rules. But they don't just bend them. They add multiple sub-points to put a burden on everybody that they themselves didn't keep. Let me give you one. You know the story, Jesus' disciples, they're walking back one day and they're walking through a grain field. It's a Sabbath. They're just walking. They're resting. They're having fun. But they're hungry. They're in a grain field. So they do what people do. They just sweep their hand through the grain, get a couple of heads of grain, break it up, blow off the chaff, eat the grain. Disciples are stalking them, literally. You just broke the law. You violated the Sabbath. Jesus said, man, you bend these things. When did God say we couldn't eat on the Sabbath? He said not to harvest, but he said we could pick and eat. And then he said this. The Sabbath, you weren't made 
to religiously serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath, the Sabbath was made to serve you. So we should be able to eat. We should be able to rest. We should be able to relax. But they're going, no, he broke the Sabbath. You know, he's doing the wrong thing. And he makes it clear. Jesus makes it clear that a true disciple, listen to me, would respond to the word of God just as he would. I'm not here to break it, man. I'm here to enjoy it. I'm here to get released by it. And I'm here to obey it and teach others to do the same, even if it challenges me. Have you ever read the Bible and you read a verse and you go, oh, what did I start in that book for? Let's go over to the next book. It's, it's a little bit easier, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't like that stuff. The Sermon on the Mount is full of this stuff. Like, for instance, he, he talks about in chapter 5, verse 38 and following, how to go the second mile, how to treat people. In other words, here's what he says. A disciple doesn't exercise their rights over others. What are you talking about? If someone commands you to walk one mile with them, you don't go, no, stuff you. No, you walk two miles. Do you understand the culture? A Jewish person is not a citizen of Rome. Palestine is under the rule of Rome. Any Roman citizen could walk up to a Jew and go, here you go, mate, here's my bag. Boom, drop it on his feet and say, you've got to carry that for a mile. If you don't, I will have you arrested. You'll be in jail the rest of your life. You must do as I say. Now, in the Jewish mindset, it was like, he wasn't speaking in tongues. He was swearing in Aramaic. And he's thinking, listen, doesn't the Old Testament tell us that we can hate our enemies because they're God's enemies? I don't have to do what he says. I've got rights. And Jesus said, a disciple doesn't exercise their rights of justice, even if they're being abused. A disciple exercises the second mile. So don't just walk a mile, carry his bag for two miles. In doing so, you're going to dumbfound him. He's going, what kind of Jew are you? Well, I'm not just a Jew. I'm a kingdom kid. And I'm doing this because I'm in the kingdom. Those are hard sayings. When somebody violates you, when somebody is inju uses injustice with you, when somebody takes advantage of you, exercise your rights. Everything in society bleeds and screams at us, exercise your rights. Look at half the movies. I mean, we look at them. We love them. We love the guy who gets revenge, right? Kill him. Cut the head off. You know, what's the guy with a chicken butt chin on uh, uh, Avengers Endgame? He's got the chicken butt chin, you know. What's he, who is he? Thanos. That's right. We just saw it the other day. Didn't you love it when Thor cut his head off? I heard enough of him. <laughs> cut his head off. And you went, that's the end of the movie. And we love that bit. You know, that bit comes from us being baptized in a culture that says, don't get mad, just get even. You have a right to get even because of the way they treated you. And we love it. I mean, people, why do they queue up for, for, for miles and miles just to get in to see that movie to see if they get even? Because we think it's our inalienable right to, to have justice and revenge on somebody. And Jesus said, it's not about that. But Jesus, man, this is hard. I don't understand this. And so what we do is this. There, there, there are some today who would interpret the Bible to suit their lifestyle. And, and, and they, that what they do is they pick and they choose and, and, and they say, you know, we're under grace, right? This grace teaching that removes us from any obligations, any disciplines, any commands. I had a teacher in South Australia in Adelaide say to me a number of years ago, probably 25 years ago, say to me, Keith, we're under grace. You can't say things in your sermon like you must. 
Because I'd say, hey, you must love God. You must serve God. You must love church. And he said, Keith, you can't say must. And I went, huh. I better cut John 3 out of my Bible where Jesus said you must be born again. There's this grace teaching that somehow just takes off all responsibility and says, do as you please because God will forgive you anyway. Huh. You know, grace doesn't do that. Grace doesn't free us to do whatever we want to. Listen, here it is. True grace doesn't do away with right living. It empowers right living. Paul said, can we go on sinning so that grace will get bigger? He goes, God forbid you'd even have a thought like that as a child of God. And when Jesus arrived, you know, John said he didn't just come full of love. He came full of grace and truth. Jesus isn't just about love. He's also about truth. And neither one either cancels out the other. They actually enforce and strengthen the other. But we've got this thing today that if we, if we say something like must, we're being legalistic. And Jesus said, you must love your enemies. And they're going, oh. God told us to kill them in the Old Testament. And Jesus said, well, that's not what it really meant. He said, you need to live by the whole Bible in its completeness. Not just the bits that seem nice, comfortable, fluffy. And then all of a sudden in verse 20, he throws the proverbial cat among the religious pigeons. I mean, this is an out there verse, verse 20. He says this, for I tell you, there it is. Here's the impact. That unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, remember the context. Every Jew would have gasped at that moment. <gasps> and you know what they'd have done? They'd have said, impossible. Totally impossible. Because the people believe these guys are the pinnacle of, of spirituality. They are the holiest of all. They are closest to God, and we will never even get that close. They do all the right things. They keep all the rules. They play church well. I give up. It's not possible. I just quit. This guy's teaching is ridiculous. You ever done that? You ever heard a sermon where you just throw your hands up and you want to storm out? You get angry and go, Pastor Ryan, that's just unrealistic. Don't ask us to love somebody that doesn't love us. That's not right. Because everything within us is screaming, get even. It set the bar so high that all of a sudden you feel like a failure. And, and you just want to storm out and you want to quit and you want to say, that's not, nobody can live like that. Listen, that is a normal response of everybody who's trying to get to God through their own achievement or religion or ticking the church boxes. Yeah, I'm a disciple. I attend this. I go to that. I read my Bible that many times. I pray that many times. I serve in this way. None of those things are bad. But those things, you can do those things and not even be born again. Oh, I know. I know. I know. It sounds horrible. What do you let this guy preach for, Pastor Ryan? Here's what he's saying. The only way that your life or my life can reach this standard that is so high that exceeds the most zealous religious person is this. When his life becomes my life. That's the only way. That is the only way. When, when we exchange our religious efforts to be right with God for His work on the cross. That's what that song was about. It's not about what I do, it's about what He's done. And it's not about what, what, what I am, but it's about who I am becoming in Him. His life was far greater 
than the, than the religious elite people around him. He was perfect in every way. He was without sin. And because of this, listen, as far as God is concerned, you can stand in front of him completely right, absolutely just, not because of what you've done, but because of what you've gained through him. It's called a great exchange. It's, it's actually, it's actually a, a grace-faith exchange, and this is what it means. We come to God, and here's what we say. God, I, I, I get it. My religion's not enough. My good life is not enough. Even my belief in you that you're real is not enough. Even the demons believe in trembling. Listen, if belief in God was enough, then why did Cornelius need to hear about Jesus and be saved? Why did the Jews need to hear? They were very religious. They believed in God more than anything. Because it's not just a belief. There is a transference that must take place where all of a sudden his righteousness, his life becomes my life. My sin becomes his sin on the cross. That's what happened. Listen, the Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, that's pretty high, isn't it? It's like the pastor of all pastors. The guy that's way up there. The one that said, man, I'm a Jew of all Jews. I've been born in this tribe, and I've kept the law. I've been zealous. And he went, it's all dung. He used the word dung. That's a nice word for, and I'm not going to say it. He said, it all needs to be flushed. Because as far as God is concerned, it didn't get me any closer than anything else. There are people that strive, and they try, and they get all the credentials religiously, and it doesn't get you close to God. There's nothing wrong with serving God, by the way. But why are you serving God? Because you are his servant or because you're trying to get him to like you? And so Paul gets this revelation, boom. This is one of these boom moments that here's what happened. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he, God, made him Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us. This is the cross, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Something happened at the cross that day. Jesus living perfectly according to the word. You know the last thing he said on the cross? It is, say it. Now say it like a minute. Finished. Same word for complete. Same word for perfect. There is nothing left to be done to make human beings reconciled to the Father. In other words, when they stand before my Father, it will not be, are you good enough? Did you do enough? Are you religious enough? It will be, I see my son. I see my son. When I look at you, I see my son. And you might not see it when you look in the mirror, but that's what he sees when he looks at you. I see my son because of this exchange that took place. It, 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 and listen, here's, here's a great thing. It's not just that I stand okay before God. It's that I now am empowered and enabled to live right before God. Righteousness isn't just about what I become. It, it is also about how I live. Don't miss this. Because the cross didn't just give me the power to become a son of God. The cross also gave me the power to live for God. I can, I can live by this word not because I'm striving and I'm trying and I'm getting better and I'm repenting like crazy because I'm so bad, but because His Spirit lives within me and empowers me to live like Jesus. That's what happened in the great exchange. And I know if you're like me, you know, there are times where Christian life just seems all too hard. Or am I the only one? I mean, I've been kind of walking this walk now, I think 40... 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, almost 46 years. 
than walking this walk as a Christian. Before that, nothing. Had nothing to do with religion or God or anything. Um, and I've been walking this walk for 46 years. And I, I need to tell you, I don't think it's any easier today than it was when I first got born again. Why? Because I'm constantly being changed to be more like him. That's not an easy thing. I'm not doing it. The Holy Spirit's doing it. And that's not easy. It's like surgery. Flipping heck. It hurts. But it heals. And I just want to throw in the towel and I just want to quit sometimes. And you know what? That's exactly what I need to do. Surrender. That's the only way it happens. I surrender. And it's only when I stop trying to live right in my own strength that I can depend on His strength. And I need to remind myself that His Word that washes over me tells me that exchange took place and took away my sin and my inability to please God. I don't have to do any, you know, it doesn't matter how much I do or don't do. The Father is not going to say over me anymore, you're my son, with you I'm pleased. He's just pleased I'm His son. You didn't used to be. I'm glad now you are. And I'm pleased with you. You're my son. But he not only gave me right standing before God, he gave me power for right living in God. That's what the cross did. And when I do that, here's the deal. I live like the kind of disciple Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm in right standing, and I'm enabled for right living. Now, Pastor Ryan, I'm being formal here and honoring, he gave me this passage at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, to talk about true discipleship, but he also gave me the passage at the end of the Sermon on, on the Mount in uh, Matthew chapter 7, and I got three more marks of a true disciple. Everybody just take a deep breath. Because a true disciple is also marked by the path they choose and by who actually knows them, not who they know, who actually knows them and by what kind of life they build. Now, Fortunately for you, time doesn't permit me to do those. That's okay. You'll just have to have me back. All right? I, I just can't, as you see, I just can't start opening the Bible and zoom through. I just kind of, what did we do? I think we did Romans. We, we got through about one line of verse 1 on the first night. Um, but what I want to do is I, I want to close by making the point on the second one, a true disciples marked by the path they choose. And in Matthew seven thirteen, Jesus said this, this seems like one of these difficult passages. Stay with me. Listen. Enter. There we go, sweet Alabama. We're finishing. Thank you. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. A true disciple is marked by which path they choose. Listen to me on this. It sounds like Jesus is saying, only a few in the world are ever going to find Christianity, true discipleship. Now listen, relax. A third of the planet right now says they believe in Jesus would be equivalent to over a billion people. That's not a few. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying only a select few are going to make it. That's not what he's saying. Remember the context. Who is he talking to? very religious orthodox Jews who were trying to find their way through the path of religion. The doorway to heaven is my religion. The way in is through my religious efforts. If I'm good enough, if I'm religious enough, I will get in. And Jesus is going, no, most of your people are going to miss it if they think like that. And he said, really, there's one way. It's got nothing to do with you except for you've got to choose it. 
There's one way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except through me. And Jesus is saying to them, I know you've been fervent. I know you've been religious. I know you've been serious. I know you're sincere. But you're still not going to make it. I want to tell you, it's going to be a sad day one day in heaven when we see so many people we used to go to church with standing there going, please, God, I was a member of people. Please, God, I, I made coffees. Please, God, I even helped out with the kids at times. I, I did believe in you. You know, he's going to say, I didn't ask you to believe in me. I asked you to believe me. You know there's a difference. So many people. It's, it, it's not because it's complicated. It's because it's simple. That they miss it. Religion never made anybody a follower and a true disciple of the way. If it did, Jesus didn't need to come. There's only one way. It is a narrow way. It's a hard way. It's, it, it's a suffering way. It costs a lot. It's called the cross. It's the only way. And Jesus is trying to say to this very religious culture, if you knew the scriptures, you would know that it would tell you that this is what's to happen. He was bruised for your iniquities. He was chastised for your peace. The stripes that come upon him bring your healing. He's talking about himself. And the only way home to the Father is this way, this way. And here's the deal. True discipleship is becoming like the one who calls us to follow him. And that journey begins when we come to the cross. That's where it starts. Not because of how religious I was, but because of how repentant and surrendered and faith in him I exercised. When you come to the cross and you say, God, I know, I know. I confess my sins, even my sin of trying to make it myself through my religion. That means I didn't need you. I confess that to you. I'm so sorry. Forgive me, Father. Wash me clean. The Bible says that if we confess him with our mouth, that he is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We become a true follower, and the journey begins. Can we just stand our feet for a minute? Bow your eyes. Could you bow your head, close your eyes? You know, I, I'm not going to pretend that just because everybody's here, that you have genuinely, sincerely, with repentance, come before the Christ at the cross and have genuinely, genuinely said, Father, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. Forgive me for trying to make it my way. I'm coming now humbly before you, broken before you, saying, I'm so lost. I'm so lost. Father, I'm not depending on my efforts and my religion. Father, I need your gift of eternal life through your son, Jesus Christ. You love me so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, I won't perish but have eternal life. So I come to the cross and ask you, Save me, receive me, make me your child. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, 
I'm just asking you, like Jesus was doing in that sermon on that day, he would ask them, hey, look at your heart. Look at your heart. Are you really surrendered and trusting me? Or is there something in you that says, I'll make it my way? Paul said to the church at Corinth, examine yourself to see whether you are actually in the faith. That just means, did you come to the cross? Did you come and ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior and receive his payment of salvation for you and your sin? Did you trust him with all your heart? And if you haven't, why not today? Why not you? Why not now? Why not say, I want to be a genuine, true follower of Christ, not just a person who attends church. If there's anybody like that, I would really love, I'm not going to single you out or embarrass you. That's not what it's about. It's giving you the opportunity and the chance to finally, honestly, humbly say, God, I need you today. I haven't trusted you like that, and I need to come to you and trust you once and for all. And I would love the... uh, privilege of just praying for you real quick if you'd slip your hand up and just say Keith that's me if I died today I I would be nervous standing before God I would not know I would revert back to everything I've done and not what Jesus did at the cross would you pray for me anybody like that here today you don't know beyond any doubt that Christ is your savior heaven is your home and God is your father why not now could I pray for you right now I'm not going to call your name I just want to pray for you God has you here for this moment, for this reason. Just give me a quick wave. I'd love to pray for you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Just close your eyes for a minute. I want you to just reflect on what you heard about being a true follower, that living by his word, not picking and choosing, not deciding, I'll do this because seems good. I won't do that. It seems tough. But being somebody like our teacher, like our master, like our Lord and Savior saying, hey, I'm here to complete the word. I'm here to live by this word fully. I want you to think about what that means in your world. I I wish I could stand here and tell you I do it 100%. It's a battle every day. But the deal is this. We have the Holy Spirit within us to win that battle. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. I want you to think about, just take a minute, I want you to think about that as we begin to close this service. And I'm going to welcome Ryan up to take over. We hope you enjoyed our podcast and it was a great encouragement to you. For more information about C3 Newcastle City, visit our website, www.c3nc.org.